Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, everyone. Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast and Covey. If you're listening, you're missing out on the Covey view here. She wants to go pheasant hunting in the worst way, and she's been pestering me. Covey, you jump down. Go to the door and get ready, and we'll go pheasant hunting. Oh, my goodness. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast with Covey the Superdog. We have got some great questions today, starting off with our patrons. This is Ryan. Ron, thoughts on the 6mm Remington? There's a real nice Parker Hale near me that I'm thinking of picking up. I just don't know anything about the 6mm. Well, I wrote back to Ryan and said, hey, 6mm Remington is kind of my pet. I like it better than the 243 Winchester. It is three. Uh, it is 100 feet per second faster with the same bullets. Case is made by nicking down a 757 Mauser. The complaint against the original, which was called the 244 Remington when it came out in 1955, was that it had too slow twist in its barrel, and that did not stabilize 100-grain bullets. But they changed that to a 1 and 9 twist and renamed it the 6mm, so you're ready to go. Mine is a Winchester Model 70, rebarreled to 6mm, and it has taken many whitetails, pronghorns, coyotes, jackrabbits, and prairie dogs. On the downside, however, factory ammunition is scarce, so you'd better hand load to get your money's worth. Otherwise, you'll be better off with a 243 Winchester or the 6mm Creedmoor or even the 240 Weatherby Magnum. Then we heard from Cody, hey Ron, I've got this itch for a new caliber for a deer rifle. <laughs> You're not the only one, Cody. Plenty of folks in that boat. I would like to know your opinion on 257 Weatherby Magnum, 6.5 PRC and the 6.5 Weatherby RPM, or the 6.5 by 300 Weatherby. Ammo availability won't be an issue. Just want your opinion. 
great podcasts. Well, thank you, Cody. And I wrote back to Cody, hey, I love the 257 Weatherby, but if you get one, try to find a 1 and 8 twist so that you can shoot the up and coming higher BC bullets. They're going as heavy as 125 to 135 grains, and I've even heard of 140 grain now. I also love the 6.5 PRC, and I consider it to be the new perfectly balanced 264. I haven't worked with the 6.5 Weatherbees yet, but their numbers look good. The big 300 version won't give long barrel life, but they make replacement barrels. <laughs> Weatherby makes great rifles and ammo, but the prices of ammo are usually higher than most, and they're harder to find. But if you hand load, no problems. Good luck. This is from Jeff. I just returned from Zimbabwe. I shot two buffalo with one shot each plus an insurance shot with a 416 Remington shooting 325 grain shock hammers per your recommendation. They worked great. I didn't get a shot at a zebra with my 270 Winchester with a terminal ascent bullet because we ran out of time because I didn't get that second buffalo until the last day. But I did get to, to shoot the 270 on a big baboon and a diker, and they performed excellently with one shot each. All my shots were under 125 yards. The rains started early this year, so it rained the last two days straight. All in all, though, it was a great trip. Well, congratulations, Jeff. Um, One-shot kills are always to be celebrated, especially on Buffalo. So keep up the good shooting, and I'm glad those bullets worked out for you. Yeah, the 270 you don't see in Africa all that often. At least they don't hear about it. But the guys who do use it always say that they work really, really well. Now, here are some questions that my wife pulled off of the uh, YouTube channels, I believe. Here's something from Joan. Hey, Ron, don't get me wrong. Uh, I, th I think you need to rework your shooting stance on the bench. Oh, yeah. I got a bunch of these, guys. Uh, we did this series on the 308 Winchester. Uh, every every day in the week, we gave another uh, shooting thing with the 308 Winchester. And a lot of folks said that I don't have a very good bench technique, but we're, we're fixing on that one, by golly. We went out and did a video on bench technique variations to see how they change. You might want to watch for that on my regular channel, Ron Spomer Outdoors. That'll be popping up here real quick. And uh, I kind of got a good lesson from some of you folks, and I appreciate that. And Joan is probably one of them. He said, uh, suggested he or she that, um, I'm slightly canted on the bench and I might want to square up to that rifle so the recoil comes straight back into me rather than twisting me to the side. And we tried that one in this video coming up. So you want to watch what happened when we did that. <clears throat> and here's one from Eddie. Hey, Ron, I have a, a cornering question for you. If you had to choose just one rifle to hunt any animals from black tail to African dangerous game, uh, Cape buffalo, elephants, etc., what would be your rifle of choice? I use my 375 H&H for everything here. 300 grain nozzle partition for elk, black bear, and so on. And a 235 grain Barnes TSX for the smaller stuff like blacktail. What is your take on a one medium to large dangerous game rifle? P.S. I have not yet hunted African game. Well, Eddie, I have. And I think you're on the right track. The 375 H&H has been the go-to all-around rifle for what you're 
what you're describing for a long time. And for the very reasons you're, you're describing, and you can use that 300 grain bullet for a lot of energy on target and deep penetration. You can go with those lighter bullets, 250 grains, even down to that 235 that you've got there. And as you found out, they work great on the smaller deer. And I don't think you're going to want to be necessarily shooting a 450 or a 470 Nitro Express or, or any of the bigger ones on this smaller stuff. Obviously, they are better on elephant and probably buffalo, but I have had great luck with the 375 on buffalo. But after I switched to a lighter bullet, even on buffalo, we have been shooting buffalo now with the 270 grain hammer all copper bullet and getting wonderful results with that. And I think the increased velocity has really helped. I'm getting one shot kills. Now we've got two one shot kills and one three shot kill on Buffalo with that particular bullet in the 375 H&H. And I even did an elephant with it. So I'm pretty high on that. Um, haven't been working with those really light bullets in it yet because, well, I've got other rifles. I don't have to just use one for everything, but you are onto something here. And I think it can can be a very effective platform as you have found out. So thanks for sharing that with us. This is Franz. The uh, Franz says the first modern three lug bolt action rifle was a Ranger Arms. Hmm, never heard of that. Designed by John Brandt and Homer Jeff Kuhn per their patents of 1965. Well, I didn't know that. The Ranger Arms actions were manufactured through 1978. In order to achieve light bolt lift, Jeff designed the cocking cam with three saw-like teeth that ratchet the cam like in a click pen. Hmm. It is my unicorn rifle. Wow, I'd never heard of that, friends. So thanks for sharing that with us. I'll have to look that up sometime. Anyone interested in the three lug bolt action rifles uh, that are becoming so common and popular now, like the uh, the Winchester XPR and uh, Ruger American. Uh, apparently, that was begun way back in 1965 with Ranger Arms. All right, those were some good ones, some good information there, folks. Let's see what the team has pulled off here for me. Austin in Ohio is asking something about steel BBs. I was wondering if it's possible to shoot steel BBs through a turkey choke meaning the safety aspect, thanks in advance. Ah, uh, yeah, you could shoot them, but a uh, not wise thing to do. <laughs> it's not so much the safety of, of you as it is the gun. Um, they pretty much routinely on those really tight chokes, and that's what a turkey choke is. It's choked way down, and that means you're going to be squeezing that shot charge really hard, and steel pellets are not giving like lead pellets do. And especially if you, when you say BB, are you meaning the actual BB shot, that really large BB shot? That's even worse because the larger your so shot pellet sizes inside of any load, the more difficult it is for them to squeeze through that bore. And if you choke it down, think of two or three people shoulder to shoulder trying to get through a door that's wide enough for one person. You all get scrunched together and somebody's going to have to get pushed to the back of the crowd to get through. Same thing with pellets, and it's a lot easier when they're tinier pellets, like number six shot. You get the big pellets, and they jam up, and then you've got the potential for exploding your barrel or at least bulging it. And most of those chokes will say, for lead shot only. Do not use steel shot. With steel shot, I always open my chokes at least one size from what I would normally use. So if I were shooting ducks, say, at long range with a full choke, if I'm using steel shot in any pellet size, 
I'm going with a modified choke, if not an improved cylinder choke. So yeah, don't go with a tight choke like that and steel shot. And read what's on the choke. The manufacturers, I've seen that most all of them have that on there, if not all of them, because it can tear things up. Hi folks, hey, some exciting news. My book on the seven millimeter cartridges is about to hit the streets. And I think we can get them to you before Christmas. Now, here's a special deal we're going to offer. Go to ronspomeroutdoors.com, my website, and you can order a personalized signed volume. We're normally going to do those for $50, but we're going to do it $40 if you get that order in on Black Friday before the end of the day. And normally, if you want to save some money, you can pick this up for $30. That's going to be the normal price. But uh, the special signed editions and personalized ones like to my best 7mm shooter husband, <laughs> something like that, we're happy to do that for you. So go to ronspomeroutdoors.com and be ready for the 7mm cartridge book we cover Every seven millimeter cartridge in the world that I could dig up, including not only the ones that are currently being made and sold as factory ammunition, but Wildcats, obsolete cartridges, proprietary cartridges, pretty much everything and anything out there. So we'd love to have your business. I hope you enjoy the book, Seven Millimeters by Ron Spomer. Oh, and Merry Christmas. All right. From Pennsylvania, we have Vincent. I really appreciate your down-to-earth and honest perspective in your videos and podcasts. I have a few personal questions. What do you miss about hunting that used to happen when you were younger? For example, camps, partners, attitude, experiences, styles of hunting, drives versus still hunting versus stands, etc. And how about private land access? And what has improved with hunting today? If anything, are we safer? Are we more knowledgeable? Do we rely on too much technology? Basically, is our woodcraft today as good as it was then, or is our memory romantic towards the past? And what would you like to see hunters do today that would improve our experiences and how we are perceived by non-hunters? Thanks, good luck, good health, and great memories to you. Well, thanks, Vincent. Those are some good, thoughtful questions. Let's see if I can get answers to all of those for you. What I miss about hunting uh, from the old days is my youthful energy. <laughs> I, I can't hike 12 miles chasing pheasants uh, every day like I used to do. Uh, can't climb the mountains as fast, et cetera, et cetera. But that's to be expected. Uh, as far as camps and partners and attitude and experiences, oh boy. You know, I still try to do a little of everything. Um, so I'm really having a, uh, lots of grand experiences now. I'm just going a little more slowly, taking my time a little bit more. Uh, I've got some great hunting partners. Uh, I had some great hunting partners when I was younger and through my middle years, and I still have some. And I'm even finding new hunting partners, both older ones and younger ones, having a great time. I think what's what's changed to my advantage is my attitude that you mentioned. You know, my attitude earlier on was, was pretty much like every other young hunter is, get them. <laughs> get out there, get as much experience as you can. I mean, I can remember racing home after work on Friday with everything already packed in the car for the hunting camp, taking off, getting to the hunting zone, throwing up a camp, getting up at the crack of dawn, hunting all day. Sometimes I would hunt ducks at first light, pheasants after that, get my limit of pheasants, and then go archery deer hunting, sit in a tree, or maybe hunt some squirrels until dark or something. And then sometimes we would even go hunting in the dark for raccoons or something. So really 
balls to the wall, as they used to say in World War II, when they pushed that ball on the throttle of the airplane forward to the very firewall of that machine. That's what that means, balls to the wall. <laughs> All right. Um, what is improved with hunting today? I think we do have uh, a lot a lot more information about our wildlife. We know so much more about the habits of whitetail and mule deer and elk and everything else. A lot less of the old fairy tales, like if he's got four points on a side, he's a four-year-old and stuff like that. So the knowledge has really improved, but I do think that we are becoming way too dependent on technology. That is a good point there. Um, I would like to see more emphasis on the old woodsmanship and uh, field skills, like stalking and tracking and finding game and things. Too many of us, I think, plunk down and depend on a rifle that reaches a little bit farther than we should probably be shooting to take our game rather than really getting down in there and tight in with them. Now, obviously, the bow hunters are an exception, and there are some really excellent bow hunters. They have come a long way since when I was a kid, bow hunting with a recurve, and Fred Bear was our hero. He was a, a consummate woodsman and hunter, and uh, the bow hunters today are really, really good too, and they've got some great equipment, and they've gotten quite effective at it. But the rifle hunters, I do see improvements in the way we shoot. I think we shoot more accurately than we did, the average person did back in the day. It just seemed like there were there were too many casual hunters back when it was fairly easy, when it was like access on ground was simple to come by. So you could just say, hey, let's go deer hunting. No scouting. You just went out, looked, looks like a good area. Let's go. Didn't really even have to ask permission on a lot of places. So there was more access then. So most people said, yeah, let's go. It's easy. Now it's so difficult to get everything lined up that you've got to be a pretty serious and determined hunter to get involved. So I think we've got more research and more serious hunters who really spend the time getting everything right before they get out. But they're still a little too dependent on all the electronic gadgets that they use. That's my personal opinion anyway. What would I like to see hunters do today to improve all of our experiences? I think they're doing a pretty good job of it, which is uh, good ethical behavior and doing things right. Um, you're always going to have folks that cut corners. Uh, you get a little bit anxious. You think you're not going to get your fair share and you get a little greedy or something. Things like that happen. But by and large, I think most hunters are a lot more open about sharing, um, not being game hogs and doing things right. They really put in the time and the money and the effort and, and the the research, by gosh, you guys that really understand the woods and, and how it all works. Um, so I'd like to see that continue even more. And then a lot more emphasis on conservation. I think too many of us are really getting into the nitty gritty details on gear. And I'm guilty of this on this show and all of my stuff because so many people are interested in guns and ammo and ballistics and bullets that when I do reports on that, I just get a lot more viewership than if I talk about hunting techniques or ethics or anything having to do with woodsmanship. But I do want to see an emphasis on that and especially the, the conservation end of it because that is what makes hunting in North America and Southern Africa so so wonderful because it benefits the wildlife so much. You know, it's the money and the time and the interest that we put into wildlife and conservation of that wildlife that makes it possible for us, A, to have all the wildlife we have now, and B, enjoy the hunting of that wildlife, while C, we pay for it.
So we need political support for that. We need the average citizens in this country to understand how this all works and why we were able to restore all the big game animals in this continent and what we need to do for the waterfowl and the upland game birds to have that same kind of success. All right, great questions there, Vincent, and thanks for asking those. I hope there are a lot of hunters out there who talk about these things in hunting camp. I know they're not that popular on YouTube, but by golly, they sure should be. Uh, this is another Vincent from Pennsylvania. I think it's the same Vincent. Ron, I think I sent this once already, but I don't know if I did it through the correct channels. Mine isn't really a question, but another aspect to think about. This isn't the same question. Let's keep going here. I was re-watching parts of a partnered podcast with Von Benedict. In that podcast, the topic of long-range shooting came up, as it often does these days, past 300 or 400 yards. Most of the discussion was about weapon proficiency. Most everyone only speaks about the shooting, but often that is just the start of another problem, the recovery. When shooting long distances, a lot of terrain has to be traversed in order to just get to where the game stood. Boy, isn't that the truth? This often means losing sight of the spot because you must go down whatever, across whatever, and up whatever to get to the vicinity of where that animal stood. It's difficult to locate that exact spot, especially with a, without a spotter when it's far away. So only then can you finally start to read sign and follow up your shot. My rub with long-distance shooting is that it introduces more variables for a difficult recovery that could be greatly reduced with shots and recovery over a shorter distance. Tracking wounded game is a skill that is only learned through experience by those patient, those willing to learn and determined, determined to do the job right. All of us need improvement, but I've helped several experienced hunters who couldn't read sign at their feet, let alone get there and do it from hundreds of yards away. Try not to point fingers, place blame, or appear disgruntled. I just want people to understand, to be successful, to learn all the skills required to be successful. And I would like for them to reduce all of the variables that prohibit a great experience and good memories. Thanks, good luck, good health, and great memories. Yeah, that sounds like the same Vincent from Pennsylvania with more good, thoughtful questions. And that's an important point. You shoot at something too far away, and by the time you get there, if it was wounded, you didn't have a chance to finish it off. You didn't get there soon enough. It could have gotten away. And as Vincent suggested, you go through broken terrain, and you might not even get to the spot where the animal stood. It all looks different. We've talked about this before. And I have done it enough times that I know to leave a spotter. Or if I'm by myself, I pick out a landmark, real obvious landmark that I can then reference when I go back and start looking for that animal. I, I think I told a story one time on one of these broadcasts about a moose hunt in which I did that. The moose was way down in a valley. We were up on the high ridge and there was a lone dead tree in this open meadow where this moose was. And I used that dead tree to locate the spot when I got down there. I didn't shoot from that far away, but just to find the spot where that moose was required that I get a good landmark. And then I took a compass reading, shot down through that compass reading, hit that meadow, saw the tree to confirm that was the right meadow, and then quickly found the moose. But for game, like this year on that um, elk hunt where I shot that bull at 413 yards, it was across a small canyon, well, small in most places, I mean, in Idaho, it's small. In most places, it'd probably be considered a pretty deep canyon. It took me a good 15 minutes to get down and up. 400-yard 
413 yards straight across shot, but I had to go way down and then climb way up. And then when I got up there, I had a rough idea where he was, but I wasn't, wasn't on him. So I was yelling back to my partner who was watching from the other side and he was directing me and that made a big difference. So yeah, those are things to consider on that long range shooting. But now imagine if I had crippled that elk at 413 yards and he had gotten behind a tree and I had no more chances to shoot at him. Then I had to cross down and come up. He, If he had been capable of moving off, he had no idea I was there when we shot. But by the time I start puffing up that climb, he's going to hear me coming. He's going to run off and I can't even see him. When I did recover him, getting guided in by Tyrell, I was within probably 30 yards of that animal before I finally saw it. So that's how thick it was. So yeah, that's some serious stuff to consider. Long range shooting is just, I mean, I've always said, no, no, 400 yards is probably a long shot, long enough. Maybe I can see a 500. Um, very few times I've shot over 500 yards. and But there's so many guys that shoot so well at longer distances, you start to think, well, I guess they can do it. But boy, when you start to consider everything, more and more, I'm coming down on shorter and shorter. I'm getting from that 500 yards down to 400. Maybe by next year, I'll be down to 300. Who knows? But the the point is, closer is always better, guys. It just is. You reduce all the variables, like Vincent said. Thanks for bringing that one up, Vincent. Now, I don't want to catch a lot of static from you guys who shoot and shoot very well at longer ranges. But even if you're a, a champion thousand yard steel plate shooter or something, I just don't think it translates to wild game. And I would stay away from it. <clears throat> All right, Michael, Tennessee. Ron, I've recently come across new ammunition called True Velocity in 308 Winchester. It's made from a polymer. From an engineering point of view, it has potentially several advantages compared to the conventional brass ammunition when comparing performance. The main advantage is single-digit standard deviation in velocity out of factory ammunition. Do you think that this is a contender to overtake the highly precise actions of the new 6mm ARC or 6.5 PRC? My biggest reservation about it is that it's not reloadable, which will limit your powder and bullet combinations to whatever the ammo manufacturers choose to produce in a factory load. Well, I think you're on it there, Michael. Um, yeah, you've, you don't have the variations, I guess, in that polymer case that you would do in your brass cases. Um, and I guess it's fairly consistent. I haven't tried any yet. I've certainly seen this stuff. But because it's not, as you say, reloadable, I haven't even messed around with it. I suspect I need to, and someday I will. I'll try some of that polymer ammo. I think they developed it mainly to reduce the weight, probably, for the military, where you're shipping lots of ammunition. Uh, and that polymer is probably quite a bit lighter weight. But as you've noted here, it might also be more consistent in its thicknesses and dimensions and everything that makes for a more consistent and accurate load in the factory loading. But then you're absolutely right. If you prefer bullet X, Y, or Z, and they're only loading bullets A, B, and C, <laughs> you're not going to get it. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, this has been around for a while now, but I haven't seen it taking over the marketplace. But uh, well, let's pay a little more attention to that. Everybody might want to check that out. Just just look into True Velocity Ammunition. You might be surprised. They're white, white polymer case, the ones I've seen. Joseph from Maryland. I watched your video on using the 350 Legend 150 grain in 3030 Model 94. 
I could not find it, but I did find 140 grain. Should that work? Thank you. Boy, Joe, I think we are, we've got our wires crossed here. I have never done a video using 350 legend ammunition in a 3030 because it won't work. <laughs> it won't fit. So I'm not quite sure if you're asking something that I'm not interpreting right here. But boy, that's, that's the best I can tell you. You cannot load a 350 legend round in a 3030 rifle and expect it to work. That just doesn't fit the chamber. It's not going to work. Now, if you mean you've taken the bullet off of a 350 legend and used it in a 3030, that might work. Um, now, the legend bullets are sharply tipped. And if it's a hard, sharp tip, you do have the challenge of that hard, sharp tip riding against the primer of the 3030 round in front of it in a tubular magazine. This is a no-no. Uh, people argue about whether or not that's going to actually ig ignite um, because the sharp tip on that bullet acts like a firing pin, supposedly. And then they go around and around on this one, but you don't buy ammunition in 3030 with those sharply tipped bullets, except for Hornady's rubber flex tip bullets. Those aren't hard enough to act like a firing pin. So you gain a little BC that way. And that's what this, uh, I think this is what he's hinting at. You use the same sharply tipped bullet that's on a 350 Legend in a 308 diameter, not a 35. <laughs> that's what the uh, legend is. So that's not going to work either. So I don't know. The whole thing's a little bit convoluted there. But I, if I guessing at what you're driving at here, you want to use those sharply tipped bullets in a 3030. So you get yourself a 308 bullet of about 125 grains, so 130 grains. Get a flexible tip on it, and you're fine. Um, but if you just want to use the hard tipped ones, two shots. That's the limitation. You put one round up in the tube. You put your second round up in the tube. When you jack that round into the chamber to, to shoot, you no longer have a round inside of the tubular magazine acting like potentially like a firing pin. So you have a two-shot gun, which should more than do the job for you if you're doing things right. Hope I got uh, close there on that one, Joe. This is Tim from Missouri. Can you go over the history and future of the Remington Model 700? It's one of my favorite rifles, and it seems to have bad rap due to the trigger issue, and many circles immediately write it off. I purchased a 700 BDL that had the trigger issue, and I sent it back to the factory to get work done, and now it's still a favorite. Thanks, Tim. Yeah, Tim, that's probably a good timely question here. Uh, the Remington Model 700 came out uh, in 1962. It was uh, some improvements or upgrades to their Model 721 and Model 722, roughly the same rifle, but they made a few improvements on it. Um, and that became ridiculously popular. It was selling for less than the Winchester Model 70, its chief competitor in bold actions at the time. And it was also chambered for the 7mm Remington Magnum that same year. And that combination just took off. Everybody wanted that. So the 700 got a quick reputation and boost in sales because of that cartridge. And then it performed remarkably well, consistently accurate with almost anything they loaded in it. And they did everything. 30-06, 270s, all the ammo of the day, the best rounds and everything else. And it... I don't know why it was more accurate, it seemed like, than most, but that's the reputation it got. And probably partly because so many gunsmiths and gun makers would use that action, custom tailor it, put new barrels on it, new stocks and whatever, and blueprint it for supreme accuracy because it was so easy to work with. 
it had a completely cylindrical uh, receiver, whereas the Winchester Model 70 had a flat-bottomed receiver, so it was trickier to get at the bed just right. Real easy to bed when you've got a cylinder inside of another cylinder, which would be the bottom curve of the stock and all this stuff. So it just made things easy to keep concentric. The bolt in the body rounded, everything round, centered it up. All you have to do is really square up the lugs and keep the barrel turned into the receiver nice and straight and square with your threads on that barrel. This is what the gunsmiths would do to make it really accurate. But when the manufacturers in at Remington had new machines and new tools and everything, they kept their tolerances nice and tight. Man, those rifles came off the line shooting MOA or even half MOA sometimes. And that was an eye-opener back in those days. Now, the bad rap started to come in from that que a question on the triggers. There were several lawsuits about supposedly the gun would go off without manipulating the trigger. I think part of it was you'd close the action, it would go off, um, or maybe they bumped the trigger or something, but they could never prove it in court. Uh, there would be case several cases of lawsuits, and then they would demonstrate it and try to make it happen, and couldn't get it done. So no one really could solve the darn thing. But Remington eventually bowed to the pressure and changed the trigger and made it uh, a little more dependable or figure out what they called it, the pro trigger or something like that. But that kind of threw some shade on the 700 for a while. But I think the bigger issue was in the latter years, the uh, tooling maybe wore out a little bit. The uh, manufacturing plant was a little older and they didn't probably upgrade to the latest and greatest CNC machining equipment and stuff. So others were kind of leaping ahead of them and you were starting to see more and more consistent accuracy in some fairly inexpensive factory rifles. And that Remington sort of took a back seat there for a while. And then they finally went bankrupt. And a lot of that I, it gets blamed on the management. It seemed like every year or two, they got a new CEO in there changing things up. And they just couldn't figure out who they were and what exactly they wanted to, to sell. Um, and they started making new models and changes. And it just got messy for a while there. Till finally, it just all sort of blew up on them. <clears throat> but now some... Investors have bought the name to make the rifles again. The ammo and the rifles are separate, but the Remington Model 700 is again being made and they upgraded a lot of things. I talked to the shop manager and he said the emphasis is going to be on consistency and tolerances and keeping everything tight and good quality throughout. Uh, he talked about some different metals that they were using, some steels, so they would have a better mesh between the steel receiver and the steel barrel. I think they upgraded the uh, extractor hook, and I'm not sure what they did with the trigger, but the samples that he had that I shot were all quite accurate. Um, they weren't perfect. You know, there are a few glitches, but they were prototypes. So I think we can kind of start to pay attention to the Remington 700 again. Um, I'm guessing that if they, they do what they say they're going to do or were planning to do, you're going to probably come back again if they've got prices that keep up with the competition and their tolerances are tight and the rifles start shooting well. It's a proven design. If it was once the kind of the go-to accurate rifle, I don't see why it couldn't be again. So you might want to take a, take a look at the new Remington Model 700s. And that looks like the end of the questions, guys. I don't know how um, that was. I got some really nice stuff there from from our patrons. We really appreciate you guys. So what you do is you go to patreon.com and then you look for Ron Spomer Outdoors and 
then you can get all the instructions on how to sign up and become a patron of me. And every month you get a couple of newsletters, let you know what's going on behind the scenes around here. You get all your videos early. Um, you get some special articles now and then, and you can, you know, as little as five bucks on up the scale, whatever you want to throw at me, I'm more than happy to spend it. I'll buy some new lights. I'll buy some new cameras. No, I really appreciate all the help we get from our patrons, you guys. It, uh, nobody's holding a gun to your head, so to speak, <laughs> and we never will. But boy, we sure are grateful for all your support. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time. Until then, hunt honest and shoot straight.